scripture reading today is from John 5. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there, in, there is in Jerusalem near the ship gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lay, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and steer up the water. The first one in the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of, of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is steered. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, the, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which his, this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this man who told you to pick, up, to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that is the word of God. Amen. Amen. That's what you, you came to see right there. Um, was that fantastic? Thank you, Beatrice. Uh, there's this uh, really, really smart guy, even smarter than Jordan Rollerson over here. I see you, Jordan. Or even Nathan Brown or Jay Huckabee in the back. Uh, smarter than those men. Um, uh, yeah, holy cow, I'm off my notes already. I just was having fun figuring a few folks out of the crowd. Uh, really, really uh, smart guy. Wrote this uh, book you uh, may have heard of called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. His name is Thomas Kuhn, super smart guy. And he said, when any person comes to new information, uh, to new data, to new uh, thinking, he or she or you, you always process it through a personal pre-established paradigm. Enough peace for you. A personal paradigm or grid to interpret the information. In other words, and here is two points. Number one, no one comes unbiased to new information. You don't do it. And when we look at new information, our consistent approach is to either look at it to support our current grid or paradigm 
or we get rid of it. We throw it away. And the classic example of how this worked that he gives is through the scientific community and how they approached the solar system for a long time. You know, for a long time, it was thought for centuries, the earth was the center of the solar system and everything revolved around it. But over time, new information came in, right? And scientists began and they were forced to look at data in a new way and perhaps, perhaps conclude they had been interpreting the old information incorrectly. And this is the way that Kuhn said that understanding progresses, that we interpret whatever we get through old paradigms, old grids, until something comes along that's too big to ignore. It shatters our old grid, and then we get an entirely new and right way of seeing what had really been true all along. All right? So now here in the Gospel of John, the writer of John is saying that a whole new way of seeing the world has come. He's saying there's a whole new grid because there's uh, new data to be considered. In short, he's saying there's a paradigm shift to be made about life, uh, about faith, uh, about the supernatural, relationships, religion, whatever you want to call that, everything. And he, he shows you that. He puts it like this in the final words of the book of the Gospel of John. Flash forward, chapter 20, at the end, John says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, because some don't, right? The Son of God, because some won't. And that by believing, here's what he's saying, that you may have life in his name. See, there's a paradigm shift, John says, you need to make. It's to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But not only that, you've got to shift not only to believe that, oh, but he says you've got to live that. You've got to experience it. John says, I want you to find, to taste the life that's in the name of Jesus. And so today I want to look at how this chapter, chapter 5, and how this sign, this miracle challenges three different groups of people to make specific changes, specific shifts in order to fully experience what John calls life in Jesus' name. And so John says, if you're going to have that, find that, taste that, touch that, life in Jesus, you're going to have to make a shift in your soul to get it. So what are these three shifts, these three moves we have to make? Let's look at them here. First, there's going to be a shift for the skeptic. Maybe that's you. Second, there's a shift for the Christian, likely many of us. Three, a shift then finally for every human heart. Let's look at each of these in turn and what they mean. Number one, here we go. There's a shift for the skeptic. And if this is you, I'm going to be nice, I promise. All right, so what's this? Well, over the last couple of centuries, as different kinds of criticisms against the Bible have been leveled, and you may have heard of some of these things, what are called uh, form criticism or higher criticism, it's become popular to take various mm, points of the Bible and hold them up as either scientifically or archaeologically inaccurate and then use those points or verses or whatever to try to discredit the message of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, and the person of Jesus. And you should know that this passage in particular, what you just heard read, was used in that way for many, many years. And here's how. The writer John describes a specific 
pool, a swimming pool of sorts in Jerusalem. And he says this, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. It's got five covered colonnades. So John not only tells you that the pool exists, he gives, you, he gives you details about the pool, the nickname about the pool, and then he gives you a legend associated with the pool. And this is in parentheses. Some of your translations include this, some don't. He said, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now pause, this is a bit of an aside. Most commentators don't believe that John's really teaching. The Bible's really teaching this is what happened. Only noting that uh, there's a legend that for some time was there based on maybe even, yeah, a real healing that had happened there, again, once upon a time. But the big point is, apart from that, that John is saying here, there's a pool with five colonnades, okay? Or five, there's the word in the Greek, porches, porches. And in the late 18th, 19th centuries, when these criticisms are being leveled, these critics uh, looked at this passage and said, aha, there is no evidence that this pool ever existed archaeologically. And not only is there no record of it, but secondly, who builds a five-sided pool? Because porches that day were only built, uh, built on one side of the pool. And so again, five porches means five sides. And no one in that day, we know, never ever built pentagonal pools. And so this chapter became one more piece of evidence in the academic case against the reliability of the Bible. They said, John certainly couldn't have written it. No eyewitness could have written it. Therefore, it must have been written much, much later by somebody who just made it up because they wanted a following or power or whatever. And then two things ch- happened which changed everything. Number one, the pool was discovered. <laughs> In the late 19th century, guess what? There's a German archaeologist named Konrad Schick. Now, uh, so far I've said Schick. I've said shift many times. I'm dancing around. I'm just trying to say I'm going to try to stay out of trouble here. You can say, you know, Lord, help him. Pray for a brother. <laughs> Some happens. Just it won't be your podcast that's uh, on the podcast. But anyway, all right. Try him. Made it through first service without hitting the landmine. All right. Anyway, the pool discovered by our brother Schick, uh, uh, he, had, he discovered the pool had actually been there all along. There had been this Christian church built on top of the pool to mark the miracle, but then the pool had become hidden from view and lost from history. And second, though, after he found the pool, he excavated the pool, and he discovered that it was actually one pool with two sides with a ridge of rock in the middle. And in the middle, guess what they built? A fifth porch in addition to the four around the four-sided pool. And, of course, now you know the rest of the story, as old Paul Harvey would say, why John takes great pains to mention there were five porches, because what kind of a pool has five porches? Oh, yeah, only this one. And it took an eyewitness to know this, because the pool was likely destroyed around 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed the city. Now, can you see the irony here? Right? That the very passage that for years, decades, was held up and trumpeted as evidence against uh, the reliability of the New Testament is now something that undergirds the reliability of the New Testament and the person and the life of Jesus. 
And you know what? I'll just go a step further and say there are many, many other places like this where some coin is mentioned, some title, some word, some location, and somebody for some time has said, oh, that's wrong and false. The New Testament writers were liars only to be changed when, hey, guess what? The coin's found, the title's found, the inscription's found, right? You say, fine, okay. (laughs) That was a lot to make your point. Why does all this matter? Well, here's why it matters and what the shift is. Most people, especially skeptics, if this is you, I think this is most likely true, that most skeptics think of Christianity as like just another religion, right? Uh, and Jesus is just a nice teacher. He's sort of like the guru of the Christian religion. He's just a good person. And the point of the Christian religion is just like every other religion with some teacher at the center, which is to provide certainty in the face of uncertainty more or less, the unspoken assumption is, for gullible, uncertain people. I just read a big book on cultures, organizations this week. That's what it tells you. That's what religion is. And so it shows you how to live morally uh, in the face of uncertainty. And so because then Jesus is now downgraded to just a good teacher, then it really doesn't matter whether he actually lived or not. Just like it doesn't really matter whether Socrates lived or not. You're just supposed to follow the wisdom of Socrates. It doesn't really matter whether Confucius lived or not. You just follow the, the, the wisdom because they're all just teachers. And the important point is to follow the teaching and, you know, get some good hints about life, which means this at the core, that God, some God, if there is one, that means he only really loves The good and the worthy. He only loves the ones, come on, who make the pilgrimage, right? Who do the sacrifices, who keep the commandments. And if you do those things, well, that's who the winner is in that system. And every system is like that. You know, you're the winner. You're getting ahead. When you do your part and you make yourself better. Except there's only one massive problem looming with that whole perspective on lumping Christianity in with that view, which is this. Jesus said stuff like this over and over. Luke 5, look at it. He says, I have not come to call the righteous. I haven't come to call the good. I haven't come to call the worthy. I haven't come to call the one who makes the pilgrimage. I haven't come for the one who keeps the commandments. I have not come for the one who makes the right sacrifices. I've come to call sinners the bad, the unworthy to repentance. He says over and over, I'm not here for the good. I'm here for the ones who know they're not. And to get into my kingdom means you have to know that. And of course, Paul the apostle picks this up over in Romans and he says, oh, we've got a God who saves, he says, who justifies the ungodly even while they don't work. You tell me if that's the same as every other system. See, and how does God do that? How does he rescue the ungodly like that? Hear me. This is where this all comes together now. It's through the true life, the real death, the literal resurrection of the factual person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if the New Testament is not true, and if Jesus either never lived, as some secular skeptics say, or if he never died, as some Muslim skeptics say, or if he was never actually and bodily resurrected, as Jewish skeptics say, that means you cannot be saved by him because it never really happened. And therefore, you can only now try to save yourself in some system through an ever-increasing and crushing burden of self-oriented performance. 
And in our culture in America, it looks like this. It means you always got to be awesome, right? Come on, you got to have that ride, Snapchat uh, feed, Facebook feed, right? Look beautiful, right? Pictures, right? You always got to look beautiful and young in our culture, especially really, really thin, right? You've got to be so smart, so self-actualized. And if you're not, then you've got to now work harder to save yourself, either at the cost of someone else's soul and reputation or at the cost of your own. Either you pick yourself up or you put someone else down. But if the Bible is true and it really happened, which it did, then this passage helps to prove that. And now here's the shift. That the Bible then is not about you, and what you must do to be the winner. It's about the winner, Jesus, and what he has done for you and as you in your place. And if you today, if you'll make the shift from making or seeing the Bible is all about you and now it's about Jesus, guess what? That will bring freedom and hope and joy. And here's John's phrase, life in his name bring life in his name. That's number one. That's the first shift. Let's move on and look at this second one as well. A shift also for the Christian, for uh, Christian people, for the church. And this one is directly, I think, related or lives downstream of the first shift. Here's my question. If the first one, first shift is a radical reorientation to Jesus and his gospel, then we should ask, well, what should Christian life, hmm? what should Christian ministry, what should the church then look like? And here's why I think this is so important, because Many churches can do this. And by the way, before I get going, let me just say, I am thankful for all the body of Christ. I'm thankful there are so many amazing churches in our city, around the world. I'm so glad we, I, are not alone. Amen. But it's so easy for any church to fall into a ditch. And here's what I mean. It's easy for a church, any church, us two, to orient ourselves around ourselves, right? Through our own paradigm and grid and not around Jesus and his gospel as best we can live that out. And what happens is that in a church over time, for lots of reasons, it can become mm, imbalanced, right? In its ministry in the city. But I think, and I hope to show you here, what Jesus calls us to models for us, and you can see right in this chapter, is this remarkable balance, tension of Christ-centered, Jesus at the core, gospel-centered ministry. And let me give you two ways. I could give you 10, but I've only got time for two. I think this passage calls us to do ministry like Jesus away from some extreme into this remarkable balanced, holistic approach. What should ministry look like? Two ways. First, here, I'm going to call it, put it like this. It should look like word and deed. Word and deed. You know, many churches, you may know this, depending on your background, they can focus on one of these to the detriment of the other. So let's ask the question here. I'll put it like this. What does Jesus care about most with this man? Does he care about taking care of his body and his physical needs? Or does he care about saving his soul and his spiritual needs? Which one does he care about? Oh yeah, that's right. Now traditional liberal churches, you will say what God really cares about is us loving our neighbor, standing in solidarity with the poor, never speaking about moral truth, right? You can't touch moral absolutes because that's just judgy, right? But look 
at what Jesus says to the man after he heals him. He comes up to me and says, hey, hey, you, hey, buddy, you know, hey, hey, yeah, you're walking around now. You like that part, huh? Look, you're well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. Yeah. Now, this, man, this isn't the hipster Jesus, right? Man whose legs fit like 10-year-old skinny jeans, right? That's not this guy. He, no, he's all up in this guy's face about his, not his mistakes, not his poor choices, but about his sin. And it comes with like, it sounds like a veiled threat. You're like, oh, I don't know if I like this Jesus. It's him, right? Now, in a traditional liberal church, that's not what ministry looks like, right? Telling individuals about their sin. And yet at the same time, Jesus doesn't just minister the word, the truth to him. What does he do? He heals him, right? Takes care of his body, physical needs. And in particular, he does this for a person who does not appear to deserve it. Not only is he apparently habitually sinning somehow, breaking the law of God, On top of that, he doesn't really have any kind of real faith. He's got some like low-level superstition in like a magical fairy pool, right? And when Jesus does heal him, the guy turns him over to the authorities, just rats him out. Uh, Flash forward, chapter nine, Jesus heals a man born blind. That guy sticks up for Jesus, debates the Pharisees. This guy, he's carrying his mat, he's healed. The Pharisees come up, they ask him, hey, you, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Translation, why are you breaking our law? He, he just points to Jesus, uh, that guy, you know. Right? See, traditional conservative churches, help is only given to people who are part of our deal, right? Who just deserve it. They're nice and clean. And if you're in trouble, you just need some truth spoken to you. Like take two of those commandments and call me in the morning, right? But how does Jesus minister here? Word and deed. Compassion and blunt truth. Only ministering one or the other will never change people like Jesus did, which is why if, you, if you're new here, you stick around here, you're, you're kicking tires at Mosaic, we're glad you're here. But listen, you're going you're gonna to hear about your need. The individuals need to be personally converted. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And about your commission personally to identify with those on the bottom, not just at the top. See, Ministry should look like word and deed. Second, there's another way I think ministry should look based on uh, John 5. Uh, we should, in our here in ministry, church ministry, should both challenge culture and affirm culture. And here's what I mean. Challenge and affirm. Uh, you know, if you, if you listen to certain voices, critics, even Christian voices, you'll hear something like this, one or the other. You'll either hear, America is doomed and under God's judgment. We have crossed a line and cannot come back. Or you'll hear the opposite. Oh, God knows we all just struggle. He loves us just how we are. God bless America. Right. So which one is it? Does God want to love our nation or does he want to judge our nation? And the answer is yes. Somebody, yes. Here's why. You got to catch this. Because if the gospel is true, and it is, and it's not the product of any one culture, which it's not, then when it comes into a culture, in a sense from heaven into that culture, when it's preached rightly, lived rightly, it's going to fit with certain parts of that culture that line up with the Imago Dei image of God, the residual remnant of who we were made to be. And yet it's always going to be resisted by whatever parts of that culture conspire together, come on, to resist a perfect, perfectly loving, perfectly holy God. In other words, 
put it like this. The gospel is always graciously subversive. Graciously subversive. Let me give you two examples. Look at how graciously subversive Jesus is here. He's at the pool. He asks the man what he wants. The man says, I want to get healed, but I don't have anybody who will put me into the pool. What does Jesus do here? Of course, he affirms that part of the man that wants to be healed and whole. In the Jewish culture, if you were crippled or lame, you couldn't be part of the larger community. He wants to be put back into community. And Jesus says, yes, that's a good desire. I affirm that. But Jesus never affirms his superstition. His belief in a magic pool is the way to go. In other words, he's telling him, right desire, wrong way to go about it. Right desire, wrong way to go about it. Same thing, one chapter earlier, the Samaritan woman at the well, he looks at her and he says, hey, 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 hey. you know all those like, mm, the men you've been with, like five and maybe like six now, who knows, we've lost count, lady, right? He says, no, I'm the ultimate man you need to get with, except not in the way you think. See, he affirms her desire, intimacy, love, romance, but says, ah, Jesus, says, I'm what you really need. You got the right desire. You're going about it the wrong way. Every culture is like that, right? Just like the human heart. It's got some desire, something it sets up as supreme or ultimate. And if you can get it and achieve it, hey, guess what? Now you get meaning. And the, and, the, and the gospel says, yeah, all those desires are legitimate. The desire you've got for intimacy, legit. For significance, legit. Family, legit. And yet they all get somehow critiqued by the gospel. And so to the question, does God love our nation? Yes, For God so loved the world. I'm pretty sure that includes the United States of America. He sent his son not to condemn us, but to save us. And yet are there things in our culture that are awful and must be addressed? Yes. And we got to believe for them to be changed and courageously speak into the heart of those. If we don't, then we're just naive and we blend in. Oh, but if all we do is critique, then we'll despair. We can't see that God is really working for our good. And listen, Christians in every century, they've always done this. They've got to address, critique the things that break God's heart and break God's people. We affirm the good, critique the bad, minister right into the heart of all of that. All right, what if? What if? What if we as a church, what if we could put these together? We, what if we could combine word and deed? What if we could <laughs> rightly uh, affirm and critique? What would that look like? Let me tell you a story. There's a man by the name of Langdon Gilkey, favorite uh, author of yours and mine, no doubt. Anyway, uh, what a great name, right? Langdon Gilkey wrote a fascinating book. It's called Shantung Compound, the story of men and women under pressure. And Gilkey, if you don't know him, he was a professor. He went to go teach in China around World War II. And where he was teaching, his village was overrun by the Japanese and he was put into a POW camp. And he said, listen, for all the people who were there, there were 2,000 of them all crammed together in one story, one city block. And each person had a small bed where they only had three feet of space to put all their worldly, worldly possessions He says it was difficult just to survive. And he says when he got there, when Gilkey got there, though he had like a mm, kind of a nominal church upbringing, he said for the most part, he was a skeptic. This totally secular person, he thought, you know, religion church is fine for people who need it. He he didn't think faith in God was necessary for a society because he thought people were basically rational, fair, organized, and good. And then when he got into the camp, during those three years there, he says he became Utterly disillusioned 
with humanity. He wrote about how he saw the worst of humanity there over and over. He described the cruelty, the theft, the selfishness. He saw all the people live live out all that stuff repeatedly. He said it wasn't just the secular people, right, without God. He says it was the religious people. He said the religious people and the missionaries were almost worse because not only did they live selfishly, cruelly, wickedly, he says they had the airtight reasons for looking down at other people and treating them worse than themselves. And he said he began to realize that people, his words, were not inherently good, but sinful. At their core, he realized people were not organized, fair, rational. And then right, he said, in the middle of his disillusionment with both secularism and religion and church, he said something stood out to him that changed everything. He said there was one ray of light that illumined that dark camp in his dark heart, that one ray of light in that POW camp was a person named Eric Little. Some of you may know that name. Little was famous, of course, for winning a gold medal at the 1924 Olympics, not in the 100, which was his best race, but in the 400. He had to run that race on a different day because he refused to run on the Sabbath. And of course, the movie Chariots of Fire is about Eric Little. And Little was in the camp because he was a missionary to China. Uh, he, was, uh, he had been born in China, had returned to China after winning the gold medal. He was bicultural, bilingual, and went there to love the Chinese people. Was captured, put in the camp as well. And Gilkey wrote, it would have been hard to overestimate the impact that Little had on the other prisoners and on himself. And he wrote this. He said, quote, it's rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But Eric came as close as anyone I've ever known to being one. Everybody struggled with anger, despair, and selfish behavior. And actually, the missionaries were almost worse than the rest. But Eric was always overflowing with good humor and joy and had a love of life. He was constantly pouring himself out for the pinned-up teenagers in the camp. He ran chess tournaments. He built model boats. He led square dancing. And he cooked them modest meals when he could. We scarcely could have survived without him. And Eric Little, the Olympian and missionary, died of a brain tumor just before the camp was liberated. And Langdon Gilkey tried to figure out what made Eric Little different, what made him tick. And finally, the Gilkey said, I understood something that pushed me away both from religion and from skepticism. He said, I understood that Eric Little had an encounter, he said, with the grace of God with the grace of God, because he heard from Eric Little's mouth word ministry. He saw in Eric's life deed ministry. He saw Eric affirm the good parts of the, one of the worst moments in time in history, and he saw him resist and critique the oppression of the camp as well. And church, let me just say, if we can do that, if we can live out word and deed, if we can affirm and critique when it's right, we can show people that we have life in Jesus' name, and it can be theirs as well. If we will refuse, hear me, the imbalance of word only, deed only, and only critique or only affirmation. And we make the shift to Christ-centered, gospel-centered ministry with the person of Jesus at the core. Now, we can do, I believe, for our culture what Eric Little did for Langdon Gilkey. Because what happened to Dr. Gilkey? Well, he survived the camp. He came to faith in Christ, became a prolific writer and Christian educator in the 20th century. All because he saw the life in Jesus' name that Eric Little had. How can we get that to him? How can we get that kind of encounter with the grace of God? Here it is. It's the third and final shift I believe this passage calls us to make. 
is to shift for every human heart. How does this shift from self to Jesus happen? I think it happens in three stages. You can see this in the life of this man. Stage one, here's the stage one. We must see that Jesus comes to us first. We don't come to Jesus first. Now, uh, it, this is important to see. It, maybe you're a person from a, a faith background, and you know, you say, well, there's like a debate about this, and yeah, everybody debates the amount of will that's involved in coming to Jesus. But one thing all Christians have said, you know, both sides of that debate, is that God does something first. God is something for you call it common grace, provenient grace, but God moves first. And the writer John tries to show you this over and over throughout the book. Look at this man, right? This man here, uh, John 5, he doesn't come to Jesus first. Jesus comes to him first. The man born blind doesn't come to Jesus first to get rid of his blindness. Jesus comes to him. Lazarus, who's dead, doesn't come to Jesus first, right? Jesus comes to him. And even at the end of the book, Mary is standing in front of the risen Christ, cannot recognize him until her blinded eyes are open. Why? John's showing you, remember, it's a sign. He's showing you a sign, a pointer of the human soul. Listen, when the Bible writes that no one seeks God, people don't like it, right? Because they think, man, that can't be true, right? Look at me. I'm in church. You know, I'm, to quote, what about Bob? I'm, you know, I'm baby stepping, right? I'm doing the steps, right? I'm in a class, but or, or what, about, what about all the people who, you know, like did walk up to Jesus? Well, let me just remind you, they can only find him because he came here first, right, to the planet. The point is, if we were smart enough or good enough to find God first, that wouldn't be grace. We'd have a reason to boast. Paul writes, not by works. That no one can boast. Stage two, we must believe to, if we want to encounter the grace of God, we need God's, hear this, salvation not just his help. When Jesus asked the man, do you want to get well? Look at it. The man didn't say yes or no. He's got some like excuse. He says, sir, I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Oh, can you see what this man is doing? This is so crucial. He is thinking, my salvation is the pool. Jesus is just my help to get it. Right, you see that? If I can only get into the pool, I'll be fine. I need the pool. I gotta have the pool. Everything else is secondary. Secondary. And so he turns. We do this. He turns Jesus into just an object, right? Jesus is only someone who can help him get what he really wanted all along. The man, and it's a good desire, the man wanted a new body. Oh, but he couldn't see. He couldn't get that Jesus had come to give him a whole new life. Oh, and this is what the human heart does. It has. It fixates on something it thinks will save him. And it's happy to pray a prayer, right? That brings Jesus into geosynchronous, personal orbit. Jesus, help me get that promotion. Jesus, help me get that person to marry. Jesus, help me be the next famous person or pastor. Yes, we do this too. Or singer, right? We say, oh, I need you to help me get into my pool, right? I need you to help me get the water. I want, here's the whole irony. He was looking for water, but water came looking for him, right? Jesus himself said, I am living water. I've come to give you what you really have wanted all along. And he heals the man without ever touching the water. What? He made the water. He is the water. 
And what that man, therefore, had only heard about, what he longed for, whatever rumor he had heard about in that pool, standing before him in that moment was a truer version of that pool. It was the pool come to life. It was the rumor come true. It was the echo from eternity he'd always wanted all along. Standing before him was salvation. Every hope he'd ever had had come to life. He needed, hear me, God's salvation, not just his help. And what did he do then? The same thing we must do. We must, number three, final stage, respond in faith and go. And hear me, we encounter the grace of God, this life-changing event. We become a Christian when we simply say, oh God, I'm like that crippled man lying by that pool. I can't fix myself on my own. I'm always looking to the wrong thing to fix me, but only you can. You are the salvation I really need. And then you respond like that man did in that moment. You, you pick up your mat in obedience to him and in faith to Jesus. Right? The man didn't stare at Jesus and say, oh, you've got a nice teaching, Jesus. Man, that's you talking about my mat. You're right. I'm going to keep staying right here. Nice mat, nice pool. No. He picked up his mat and he went. And second, for the Christian person, let me tell you, this is how you continue to encounter the grace of God over and over again by looking to Jesus, responding to him as he commands you, as he leads you. Listen, our hearts, even for the Christian person, mine does this. I can feel this all the time. He tries to go back to some stupid, stinking, shallow pool. Right? I want to look to that thing. Listen, we begin with the gospel. We must continue with it. We can forget what brought us this far, right? Even if you're a Christian. As for a church, it's a trap. It's a trap for any church, right? Listen, if you're new, let me tell you what has made us, what has formed us, what has shaped us. This church is by following the living water, by following Jesus, living out his gospel. That's come for every human life. That's what's gotten us here. It's what's gonna get us there. And let me tell you, whatever pool you've been looking into, maybe it's been for 38 years. Who knows why, right? I mean, he was born that way. Did he have an accident? Who knows? It doesn't matter in a way. And you're blind to what's standing in front of you. Today, hear me, can be your day. You can be free. As the hymn says, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy.